Uh, I think for me, the first thing I learned was that it's uh, running the businesses. It's you've got lots of micro businesses within it. It's not just one business. You know, you've you've got to have a handle on a marketing department. You've got to have a handle on a health and safety and compliance department. Then you've got to be thinking about admissions. Then there's a lot of time spent and energy going into the guest experience, the maintenance, the upkeep, future planning. So it really struck me that you've got micro businesses within the main business. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going fantastically, Josh. How are you? Did the audio just kind of fade in and out there, or was that your voice? I'm going to say it was my voice. It was intentional, completely. I think it was. <laughs> But I'm glad to hear that you're fantastic. Question for you. Thank you. Yes. What is the greatest sunset you have ever seen? Oh, man. Um, the first one that comes to mind was when I was in Key West. Hmm. They get some pretty great sunsets down there. Um, can I tell you the greatest sunrise? I know where you're going with this, but... I guess so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it kind of looked the same. <laughs> Just depending on which direction you're, you know, the sun is going. Or actually, right. we're going. Sun doesn't move. Um, when I was in Ireland, okay, we were at this bed and breakfast, and they had this little table kind of outside the bedroom, like in the, right near the parking lot, but you could just sit there. My friend and I had a cup of tea in the morning, and there was this farmland that was out there. So a lot of times you think about, you know, a great sunset over the water at a beach, you know, mountains, that kind of thing. And this was just rolling hills, farmland. And there was this one, no pun intended, silo, because I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, um, like a, far, a real farm silo that was out there. So it was like the only man-made structure out of all of this natural beauty. And the sun would just rise from there. Well, you know what I'm talking about. We 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 we'd enjoy a nice conversation in the morning. That was probably one of the best sunrises. But I think I got to go back to Key West for the best sunset. Well, I accept your sunrise answer in Ireland, and I accept <laughs> your Key West answer for sunset. That is absolutely a million dollar sunset. Yeah. And, and did everybody clap when you see the sunset? Yes. Yes. Yeah. They did. Mallory Square. Yes, Mallory. Exactly. Exactly. Although now that I'm thinking about it. I've seen some pretty great sunsets. This is going to get nerdy behind roller coasters. You know, I think one of the best captures that I've made on my phone as a picture was behind the voyage at Holiday World. And okay. Set behind that. So it's a great structure, great vision. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Sunrise Sunset Pros <laughs> podcast. <laughs> The answer that I was going to give, and I do agree with Key West, and I do agree with anytime you see a sun rising or setting behind a roller coaster is magnificent. I was going to go with the sunset over the Atlantic in Portugal. Oh. From the Garve coast. It's where my wife and I, we went on our honeymoon. I remember that being absolutely spectacular. The reason why I ask the question is... <laughs> Because our guest today gets to see some incredible sunsets from somewhere we wouldn't normally think to associate with an incredible sunset. And that is the Isle of Wight, which is off the southern coast of the UK, which our guest Dominic Ray says, sometimes in the summer, it even feels like a tropical island, which is not something people normally associate with the United Kingdom. Yeah. So Dominic Ray is the parks director for Vectus Ventures, which operates Black Gang Chine on the Isle of Wight. And it is the oldest amusement park in the UK, having operated since 1843. That's older than definitely most parks 
in the U.S. Is that is that older than the oldest park in the U.S.? I believe it is. And, you know, when you just think about history in general, most things in the U.K. are older than things in the U.S. So that it makes sense, right? It makes sense. It checks out. Yeah, it, it checks out. Yeah. yeah, we've got receipts. Is that what the kids yeah. say? No, we've got the receipts. Um, <laughs> younger than, than my time. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I thought was really, really fascinating about Dominic in, in general, but also, you know, how he talked about the attraction was the fact that it is so historic and there's so many things that, you know, are still there from the uh, from the early days and how it's being, you know, married with the the new technology. You know, they just talked about a new Zamperla ride that they just put in and you know, when you think about where they are, and I, I got to see some pictures just online, it's a really beautiful setting. And he even says I have one of the best views, you know, from my office. And I, I wouldn't doubt that. Um, but just blending the old and the new, I mean, that's really old, you know, and, and with the new that they have to blend. So, you know, I would imagine it's a challenge to continue to, you know, pay homage to the history when the history keeps getting further and further away you know that 1843 it keeps getting older right so at some point do you say well you know this has been here for you know so long do we just replace it or do we make sure that it's it's still there for another hundred years or so and it sounds like they they walk that line really well we get to hear about their halloween event terror island which a lot of the the haunted attractions are are basically woven into these historic buildings, and you you feel that eeriness not because it's it's built and constructed that way, but because it just naturally has that that old historic almost almost creepy type of feel to it. If you were going into say like a very old building that had a lot of history, so it's absolutely to to hear how how they like you said balance that line and and uh, reference the history while also moving into the future too. Right, right. Well, and speaking of how that all happens, you know, it takes a, a unified team to get there. And, you know, Dom talks about the micro businesses within the, the larger business of the of the amusement park. You've got food and beverage, you've got retail, you've got, um, you know, ride operations. And yes, they are their own businesses, but they all have to work together. And Dom came from a different industry. He came from banking. And he said that was one of the things that he realized when he got into the business was that, you know, you do have to understand marketing and food and beverage. And obviously there's people that specialize in those things. But when you're the parks director or a general manager or a park president, you've got to have a hand in all of that. And that really, really requires someone to have a lot of diversity of thought and ability to manage their time and manage all of their priorities to, to help your your uh, micromanagers, that didn't come out right, but to, to help them run their, their businesses within the business. And that ties in nicely with one of the other things we talked about, which is about breaking down silos and how the departments communicate with one another and that you're able to build a more cohesive product when uh, when, when the departments are, are more interconnected and when there aren't uh, those silos there that are that are separating communication between teams. And one of the things that helps that is uh, Dom's attitude that you should really leave the island at some point, right? Um, get out, see other attractions, see other businesses, take in um, the way other people do things. And of course, when we talk to him about what he likes to look at, we talked about trash cans. Um, so when you think about what it takes to broaden someone's horizons, a lot of times it does take getting them to see a different horizon, getting them to see a sunset in a different place for that appreciation. And I really appreciated how he talks about internal versus external networking and how that can really expand people's mindset and then bring that back to uh, benefit the business. Back to the island, yeah. And, you know, he talks about his, uh, you know, his time learning from IAPA and taking courses at IAPA Expo. He's also very involved with BALPA, and he is on the uh, management committee for BALPA as well. We get to hear about uh, the British Association of Leisure Parks, Piers, and Attractions, too. Nice, nice. So is it time to uh, hop a boat over to the Isle of Wight and uh, get to this conversation with Dom? Let's do it. Hey, Dom, welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. We're really excited to chat with you today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. 
Yeah, our pleasure. So to kick things off here, I feel like we need to connect the dots with a recent podcast interview that you did with our friend Kelly Molson on Skip the Queue. We're big fans of her podcast. She always asks everyone for their unpopular opinion. So I figured that would actually be a good place to start with our interview with you. You said that motorists ruin the road for cyclists. I think that's a perfect starting point here. And, and can you tell us a little <laughs> bit why why uh, that's your unpopular opinion? No, that's my unpopular opinion because I love cycling. Um, big fan of, of road cycling. Uh, very much enjoy doing that on the island uh, where I live, on the Isle of Wight, uh, and in Spain uh, a couple of times a year as well. Um, and I do think that if everyone rode around on bikes all day, it would be much more of an enjoyable experience for the uh, for the cyclists. Uh, but equally, as a road user, I do appreciate the frustrations of uh, of cyclists sometimes the other way around as well. So that's where I was coming from with uh, with that. So I'm curious, Dom, not that this is the Cycling Pro podcast, but, you know, where I live in in Western North Carolina, we have a lot of windy roads and a lot of road bikers that love to get out and and, you know, challenge themselves on the hills and things like that. But they always seem to ride three or four cyclists wide. You know, they're almost yeah. taking up the entire um, yeah. side of the road. So is there a... Um, is there a reason for that? Like, is there an advantage to riding like that? Or is that just because they want to talk to each other? Like, what's the background on that? So in the UK, you can ride two abreast. So you can ride one person next to you. Um, and that is for safety reasons, because it's easier for a car to overtake you rather than if you're all in one big long line, it's harder and longer for a car to, to overtake. Three or four, they might they might be um, stretching that a bit where you are, Matt. I think yeah. <laughs> they're talking a bit too much and not riding enough. Yeah. It's interesting because I never thought of that. Like if there if there's one long line, it would be much harder for a car to pass. Okay, that's that's enough of cycle pros. Let's get back to attraction pros. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Dom, tell us uh, tell us a little bit. Well, we already know a little bit about, about you, but tell us more about yourself and uh, about your career as well. Yeah, no problem. So uh, I'm the parks director for Vectis Ventures uh, and I oversee Black Gang China on the Isle of Wight, which is the oldest theme park in the UK. Opened in 1843. Um, so it's been going for a number of years now. Uh, I started my career off uh, working within a bank, uh, actually selling houses to start with. So I was an estate agent for a number of years um, working in the property market. Then I transitioned into um, working for Lloyds Bank over here in the UK. Uh, in a mixture of personal banking and commercial banking as well. Um, one day I had a client come in. Uh, her name is Paula. She's actually our HR director here. And she told me about this place called Black Gang China that she worked at that I'd visited many times as a child. Uh, and she always spoke about a job with a lot of enthusiasm and passion and, and how much fun it was. And she was telling me about all the dinosaurs and the rides she was dealing with and all these cool events. And um, I left that meeting thinking, oh, I'm... I'm working in a bank. This doesn't sound anywhere near as fun as this lady's job. Um, and, and one day I saw um, the advert come up uh, for the park manager role uh, at Black Gang, which I applied for and was was successful in that. At that point in time, I thought to myself, okay, I can. I've I've sold houses. I can I can sell financial products. I can I can run a bank. Uh, surely selling fun is uh, just the same as selling anything else, and I must be able to do that and apply those same same sorts of principles to that. Um, I think I was a bit naive in my my confidence in that. Uh, and I remember turning up on, on day one and someone gave me a laptop and a, a set of keys and saying, cool, here's this, here's this park. You're now responsible for all of it. Off you go. Um, so one of the first things I did was jump on a plane to Orlando, to IAPA. Uh, and I went to one of the educational courses there on how to run a theme park and how to manage a theme park. Uh, and I came back from there with my uh, my big folder and having visited a number of attractions in the States with kind of a good idea of, okay, this is a good platform and basis of uh, of how to work work from. And then I've just moved on within the company um, from then. So yeah, from one completely different industry into a, into a way more fun and exciting one. So Dom, I'm curious about that learning curve because you said you were a little bit naive um, maybe coming into the, the, um, the industry, but... I'm curious, what were some of those early lessons that you took away from your your experience, either coming to Orlando or uh, just kind of being in the in the thick of running the theme park? Uh, I think for me, the first thing I learned was that it's uh, running the businesses. It's 
you've got lots of micro businesses within it. It's not just one business. You know, you've, you've got to have a handle on a marketing department. You've got to have a handle on a health and safety and compliance department. Then you've got to be thinking about admissions. Then there's a lot of time spent and energy going into the guest experience, the maintenance, the upkeep, future planning. So it really struck me that you've got micro businesses within the main business of F&B retail. And there's so many different uh, strands to that and you're really in the center of the of the spider's web um, and I think that kind of going to IAPA and on that course I really cemented that in my mind uh, in terms of the main thing is making sure all of those people are working together in one and communicating and then that's how you achieve success really. Mm -hmm. And then with all those micro businesses, as you uh, as you you know took the, those lessons from IAPA and those courses, and were able to to really implement them in, when you look at all these micro businesses, how do you determine where to focus your time and energy and say, okay, there there are all all these things going on. We do want to make sure we operate as a team. What what do I do first thing in the morning when I get here? What's what's the first micro business that I look at. <laughs> so every day when I come into work, I've got a plan of, um, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Normally that goes out the window by about 10 o'clock, uh, which I think is the same for everyone. Um, but we we run Black Gang China is very much of a seasonal operation. Uh, so the site opens from March through to November. So my job almost has two halves to it. Um, in the closed period, it's very much around the strategic planning for the following year, what uh, new attractions are we putting in? What attractions are we going to improve? How are we going to improve systems, processes, people, looking at the future events for the park? And then once the park's up and running, it's about making sure that all of the teams are working together and that those departments are firing all cylinders when we have guests coming in. Um, the main areas that I focus on are the um, commercial side of the business. So what's going to return um, most revenue, which is normally food and beverage and, and retail in terms of secondary spend, whilst also making sure I've got a keen eye on what's going on with the, with the main product, which is obviously the park as a whole and the emissions process for all of that. So when you think about all the, again, those micro businesses and and your priorities and and the two halves of your of your job there. Um, tell us a little bit about how you kind of switch hats, right? Because I think in in those kind of roles, we we think about switching the hats from you know your operating season to your non operating season. But within a day, you may be making decisions about marketing, food and beverage, you know, um, retail, all those different things. So how do you switch your mind from one area to another? Sometimes I'm sure very quickly. Yes, so I try to time block my day out as well. So I'll try to make sure I've got key blocks of time throughout the day with each head of department um, to ensure that, okay, when I'm speaking to this person for this hour, we're focusing on F&B, then I'm moving on to focus on to marketing, and then I'm moving on to focus, for example, on retail. That's the plan. Um, sometimes I said that doesn't go to plan. We might have something that comes in that needs to needs to needs to change that. But I think um, it is a role that requires you to be quite dynamic in your thinking and think on your feet a lot and be able to change direction um, quite quickly because things can come in at any moment. For example, we're planning our music events, um, which we're running on site next year, and we're in the process of offering on various different DJs for that. So we keep getting lots of phone calls and quick meetings to jump in, depending on what offers have come back in um, for that as well. So I try and have a planned structured day, but it's also about responding to the needs and requirements of the team as well, um, ensuring that I'm there for them as and when they need me throughout their day as well. Hmm. I'm wondering if we can pull back a little bit. You gave a, a brief overview of Black King China and talked about how it's uh, the most uh, historic, the oldest park in, in the UK. Can you actually just tell us more for those who might be unfamiliar, what's the experience like? Can you kind of give us a, a virtual walk through the park? Yeah, yeah no problem. So. Um, as we said, it's the oldest theme park in the UK. Uh, Black Gang's unique selling point is its uh, coastal position. So the park is situated on top of a cliff top uh, on the Isle of Wight. Um, and we have the most beautiful outlook across um, the Solent and towards the back of the island as well. And we get fantastic sunsets from here. And it's really a landscape that's unlike any other I've, I've come across with a theme park. Um, so we are dubbed as the land of imagination as we have lots of uh, various walkthrough experiences and 
areas of the park which are heavily themed so for example we have one area called cowboy town which you can go into and there's a shop called general stores where you can buy your armory and your ammunition you can pan for gold um, we have live action cowboy shows there but what really sets that apart from any other cowboy town is it's set underneath the backdrop of the cliff so when people walk into it they're like oh wow this is like a movie set and then you, you sort of say no this actually is the is the cliff it's the real landscape of the area so what's very unique about the park is we've made use of that landscape to try to enhance it to give people a really immersive experience um so we have various different areas we've got an area called area five where we have large-scale animatronic dinosaurs but that involves you taking a walk down the cliffside underneath the dinosaurs they're coming at you from lots of different angles we have lots of different plantations on the island because of the climate here so that's very unique in terms of the plants that we're able to have here all of our rides with their positioning we've got a drop tower um, that's positioned above the dinosaur area um, but when you go up to the drop tower you can see the drop all the way down to the cliff underneath you as well so it's quite a dramatic experience um, this year we put in a brand new uh, gyro swing from zamperla which does a 120 or 360 rotation um, and when you get very close to the top, it does feel like you're going to fly out over onto the beach underneath you as well. So it's um, it's a very quirky park with lots of different areas. We've got dodos, dinosaurs, fairies, pirates, cowboys. Um, it's all sort of a melting pot of crazy ideas that have, that have come together over the years. But it's really that location that, that sets it apart. I, I do think I've got one of the best office views in the world, I would say. <laughs> And can you explain the the name Black Gang Chine? Yeah, so Black Gang um, is a village on the Isle of, Isle of Wight. Um, and a chine is a naturally formed ravine, so to speak, that water will cut through a cliff edge and form. So it was a village called Black Gang and there used to be a chine here, which went all the way down to the beach. Um, and historically the park had, had lighting uh, and lanterns that would have led you down to the beach. That's because um, the park, when it started in 1843, was started after a whale washed up on the beach. Um, and Mr. DeBell, who was the uh, original owner of the park, took that whale, um, stripped all the flesh and skin off of it, and exhibited the whale skeleton as a sort of macabre uh, tourist attraction back in Victorian times. And many people hadn't seen something of that scale um before uh, and we still actually have that original whale skeleton in the park for people to come and visit today but that's that's how the the park started and that's where it's got its name from so i feel like you not only just gave us an, an overview of the park and what it's all about but i feel like you just took us on a trip through time as well yes how do you preserve that history uh, that the park has and, and being the most historic park in the UK, 1843, while at the same time you said you just installed it a Zamperla ride. So looking looking at that and also looking into the future as well, making sure that uh, that it always stays current, it always stays fresh, it always stays relevant, but while at the same time really acknowledging and, and referencing the history of the park too. So there's some areas of the park um, which we have kept the same. Um, so, for example, we've got uh, some of the original fiberglass dinosaurs which came into the park actually via helicopter um, and were on national news back in the 80s when, when that happened. Um, and we've upgraded those to animatronic dinosaurs. So what we do is we take a lot of the classic areas and pieces of the park and put a modern twist on them. Um, for example, in Pirate Cove, we've got um, two big wooden pirate galleon ships that people can squirt water at each other across across the ships um, and we're in the process of looking at installing a swinging pirate galleon boat ride into the park to put a bit more of an immersive and modern experience on it so we always carefully have a nod back to that heritage and the original idea or concept within the park but try and take that and put a modern twist on it for a for a, a different generational audience so can we switch gears just a little bit and talk about life on the isle of Wight? because i think it's probably a place that if people have heard of, they may not have been to. Um, yeah. Small island, you know, just south of, you know, mainland England, um, if I'm if I'm correct. Um, and, I, and I think you grew up there, correct? As a yes. as a boy. So um, can you tell us about life on the island and, and how it might differ from other parts of the world or even other parts of the UK? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, the main thing is you have to get a boat to get on and off of it. So uh, I've grown up very much used to getting on a boat uh, to travel. 
Um, there's various ways of getting on and off different scales of boats. We've got hovercrafts that come backwards and forwards to the island as well. Um, it does present its unique challenges when we're looking at uh, bringing goods and services across to the island as well. But it is incredibly connected. You know, we're, you can get on the boat and be in central London within an hour and 20 minutes. So it's, it's not as far away as people um, think that it is. Um, and the island is varying degrees of, of beautiful coastline. Um, there's a microclimate. It's almost like being uh, abroad in some places. You have an area of the island called Ventnor that's sort of very much of a French town. It's got that kind of vibe. It's got palm trees there. Um, so in the summer months, it can feel like, well, you are on a tropical island, um, which I don't think you can get anywhere else in the UK, really. Connecting that with everything that you do and being the parks director and overseeing Black Gang Chine, having grown up there, being a native to Isle of Wight, it, is there some part of you that feels like when, when you see guests visiting the park, that you're you're welcoming them to almost like like your home like you like do you, do you take more ownership over that I, I'm just thinking you know I I grew up in Detroit Michigan and I moved to Orlando and I worked at Disney World right I was I was in an area that I hadn't previously lived in before but for you it's it's right there it's almost like it's it's your neighborhood it's your backyard is that what what type of feeling does that bring out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly if I if, if there's anything in the park that um, people don't like or hear about it, I want to go and get my hair cut or go to the garage uh, to, get, to get my car fixed. Um, but we have a lot of generational uh, visitors to the island. Um, so a lot of people come to Black Gang. They will bring their grandchildren to relive experiences that, um, that they've had as well previously. So there's lots of areas within the park um, that, we, that people will come back and take uh, photo reference points with their family to create reoccurring memories. Um, we have a little toadstool in one of the areas of the site that has the date on it. And um, every year people will bring their family and sit the kids on the toadstool and take a picture with the date on it and then come back each year after that. Um, but it is, it's an amazing experience to welcome guests into the park. And it, it does feel like an extension of your, your home and you have a bit more of a, a personal connection with those people that are coming in. And we, we certainly have a large season pass uh, Hold a database which are predominantly people that live on the island that are local people um so you do get to see guests children grow up and they'll start off on the smaller teacup rides and then you can see them go up through onto the uh onto the bigger rides as well so it's quite a personal experience i would say you know you mentioned the season passes one of the things i was curious about is maybe that mix of locals right that are coming there every single year to to take the, the picture of their of their family versus people that are coming in maybe from other parts of the UK or even other parts of the world. Um, because like you said, you have to take a boat to get there. It's not as easy maybe to get to as some other places. So I'm just curious about that that mix. Is it mostly locals or do you have also the, the international visitors? Yeah, so predominantly 80% of our trade comes from uh, tourism coming across to the island. Um, so our, our trading pattern is, is almost like a very steep mountain. Um, we're incredibly busy from June through to um, the beginning of September. Then we slow down again, slow down again, and then we're very busy again in October half term. And then the rest of the year when we're open, that's predominantly local people that are coming um, to visit us. But the, the main majority of our, of our customer base are tourists coming across to visit the island uh, on holiday. You talked about, uh, you know, being on the island, it can be sometimes challenging to get goods and services. What about staff and employing and, and staffing Black Ink China? What, what, uh, what type of staffing challenges do you, do you encounter? And particularly, how do you, how do you manage those and, and help to overcome them? Yeah, so our, um, that staffing profile really changed after COVID. Um, prior to COVID, it was a bit more of a challenge, I would say, to um, source quality uh, upper management and middle management team members. Um, and then when we saw COVID happening, we had a lot of people that moved across to the island um, for, for a change in lifestyle, moving out of the city. Um, and we found that that actually really helped upskill our business. Uh, for example, we have a lady that works for us called Laura, who's head of our marketing team. She's worked for visitor attractions across the UK. Moved across to the island for a, uh, a quieter pace of life, um, but she hasn't really found that with, with working for us. She's going at 100 miles an hour again. Um, so we've really been able to improve our um, our senior leadership team post-COVID. Um, in terms of our seasonal staff base, we rely predominantly on um, locals for that. Uh, some departments are more challenging to hire for than others. We find that... Um, 
retail admissions, ride operations are very popular departments, um, but food and beverage can sometimes be a bit more a bit more challenging um, to, to staff and resource. But I think that's a, a reoccurring trend uh, across other attractions that I speak to and isn't isolated to us, really. Well, yeah, I was just going to say you speak to the operators over here in the States and they say the exact same thing, you know, in a lot of cases. So um, one of the things I'm curious about is from the staff perspective, you know, you talked about the history and you talked about, you know, the, also the, the vision for the future. Is it important for you to, to make sure that the, the staff has some semblance of what that history is to, to share that with a guest? Or is that kind of icing on the cake in terms of the, the experience? Like, where do you put that importance of the, the history in terms of the, the team members that are serving the guests every day? So when uh, new team members join the team, it's part of their induction is that we take them through the history of the park. We will take them on a walk through the park as well. And that walk is both from an operational viewpoint, but equally explain, we explain to them around, okay, this area here is this. It was previously this. Guests may have remembered it and visited it at this point in time, and that and that's what happened there. I think that's important for the um, all of our staff to understand the heritage and the history of the park, because that is what a lot of the customers come in and want to have a talk about and in, enjoy, and that enriches the experience for them. So we make sure that's a core part of their onboarding process as well. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about? about the culture and about the team and being able to develop the staff and uh, and just a little bit about kind of what what the work environment is like yeah sure so um we're we're very much one one team as a whole uh when i joined the business i was quite keen to break down any walls or silo working that i maybe encountered when i first joined um, and we've worked really hard to get everyone working together and understanding that something that might be affecting, um, you know, food and beverage can have a domino impact through to the rest of the business as well. Um, so now everyone very much works together in a very collaborative um, manner. Um, obviously, sometimes we, we have various different uh, disagreements and people from different departments have different viewpoints on things. But I think that's quite healthy um, to be able to challenge each other in a professional and respectful manner. Um, but we very much have a culture of everyone pulls together and works together towards a common goal, especially when we have events on that, you know, involve a melting pot of, of departments coming together. And it's, it's really great to see how passionate the team are about delivering that, that great guest experience as well. I'd love to peel back the onion a little bit on that. Um, as Josh and I like to say quite a bit, um, because when you talk about, you know, even coming into an organization and, you know, making sure that there aren't those silos and people are working collaboratively, collaboratively together, I don't, still don't think I said it right, but um, there's a lot of personalities involved. So I'm curious about some of your strategies and things that you you had to do in order to get to the point where you could be more collaborative and people weren't working in silos because that's just what they felt comfortable doing, or I didn't like that other person or whatever that means. So if you could, you know, maybe, maybe yeah, expand sure. on so, that a little bit. So one of the things that we uh, do as a business every two, three years is we run what's called an insights workshop. So that involves the uh, team, senior leadership team and management team filling in a survey, which basically dictates and explains to us a bit more about their personality types and that will then put them into four different color spectrums red green blue and yellow um, and we will then sit down as a team and discuss the different personality traits that each of the team members have and basically talk through how we like to be communicated to and also how we like to receive feedback how we like to receive criticism what are the best communication cues to use with certain types of people and having gone through that experience multiple times it's really enabled the team to understand more about each other and really get a better understanding of okay if i'm going to go and speak to james about this i understand that maybe i need to ask him how his family is how his weekend was uh, and, and and discuss other elements of his life before I get to the point of what I've come to speak to him about. And other people just want you to get to the point and they don't really like small talk. So that's one of the methods that we've, we've employed um, to do that. Uh, equally, we've taken the team on various team bonding exercises over the years as well, which has really helped them understand a little bit more about what makes them tick, 
what motivates each of them, um, how each of them are driven, and what's really important to them as people, I think, uh, helps you then break down those walls and understand a bit more about your colleagues and how, how they all work together as well. Hmm. What are some of the tangible business outcomes that have come from that, that you can trace back directly to doing this exercise? Um, I would say we've we've had better overall staff productivity um, in terms of we've been able to lower our overall labor costs because now the various departments are, are keener to work together and understand the impact that if somebody from F&B needs support from retail or admissions, the retail and admissions managers keen to go and send that help and support rather than us bringing additional labor costs because they understand why that manager may be asking for that. So it's improved communication amongst the team, which is overall helped the profitability of the business as well. I love to hear that. That's what I work with a lot of organizations on is, is communication. And it seems like just about every issue that people have in organizations comes back to communication. Um, so I love to hear that you're doing these insights workshops. Can you talk a little bit more about how it has impacted communication? I know you talked about kind of styles, but you know, in the in the moment, like as people are interacting with one another and collaborating, you know, what do you see almost from an outsider's view? Like if you're watching the team, how do you see them interacting with one another? I think it's really helped uh, when we have group meetings. Um, it's very much improved that communication around the room at points before where there may have been uh, disagreement or, or, or conflict around that. You can sort of see people taking a second thinking, okay, that person's viewing it from that viewpoint because of this. Um, and that then has reduced the, the sort of the differences of opinions around things. They're still there, but it's more of an understanding of why someone may have that mm -hmm. difference. I also think as well, it improves um, conflict resolution within within the team as well, because they, they have a better understanding of why someone may feel that way around a particular subject uh, and have a better understanding of how to address that with them. If there is that difficult conversation to have, um, we found that the team are much more prepared and have the tools to go and have those conversations with each other rather than it getting escalated up to management for them to have to step in and have that conversation. They're just better equipped to communicate directly with each other. Hmm. So Dom, one of the things that Matt and I like to talk about a lot is the intersection of the guest and employee experience and how the two very much go hand in hand. Everything that you're talking about, creating a, a more productive workplace that then reduces labor costs and enhances uh, productivity and enhances uh, communication between team members. How does that then translate to the guest experience? Well, I, I would like to think that the team have uh, a more of an enjoyable experience working here, um, which I think is very important because that is the key thing to then translate across to the guests. You know, the people that are coming into the park, they're on holiday, the majority of them, or they're wanting to have an enjoyable afternoon with their family. It's a fun environment and fun space for them to uh, come into. We want that to be conveyed across to the guests from the staff. So if the staff are relaxed, they feel happy, they feel like they're, they're well equipped with all the tools to do their job successfully. I do believe that translates across nicely into the guest experience as well. And then ultimately we want the staff to have fun with the guests, interact with them and for them to have the most memorable experience when they come to the park as well. And I think that that does help trickle down into the, into the customer experience at the end of it, really. Yeah. So Dom, you've mentioned um, IAPA already that you've attended that, but you're also in, involved in what some people may not know about, which is sort of the British version of that, which is BALPA. Um, yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about your involvement with them? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, BALPA is a British association of leisure parks, piers and attractions. Um, and I absolutely love the organization. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it's a real melting pot of different uh, scales and sizes of visitor attractions, theme parks, farm parks, um, suppliers. Uh, it's just a brilliant melting pot of all those, all those individuals and companies coming together. Um, I sit on the management committee board there. Um, we have members of our team, such as James, who sits on the health and safety committee board, and Laura, who sits on the uh, marketing uh, committee there as well. Um, and it's just a fantastic organisation to be able to not only build relationships um, within your local area, but also within the wider industry as well. Um, and I really found that that uh, Balpa as an organization has really helped with the development and confidence of the staff 
uh, within the team as well. Um, and it's just a fantastic place to network and gain understanding around how anything can work within the industry. Um, it's a very open and honest organization as well. We've we've worked collaboratively with lots of different parks. It's opened up and built lots of relationships. We've got great relationships with the guys over at um, Poulton's Park and uh, Gary, who, who works there. He's been fantastic with helping us with some of our operational questions, you know, from someone that works in a, in a larger organization. Um, it's just a really transparent um, organization. I think it's a fantastic part to be of. Dom, I'm curious as far as uh, the collaboration across the industry and different facility types and different types of attractions between places that are, are more amusement driven, like Black Ink Chine, and places that are more maybe cultural vision whether or uh, driven, whether it's uh, historic homes or gardens or, uh, or, or historic sites and art museums and things like that. Is there a lot of collaboration between the two? Or sometimes I hear that uh, that those on, on the cultural side, they don't want to be considered themselves as an attraction because then that associates more with the amusement, whereas a lot of the same challenges are are almost identical. So I'm curious as far as how, how the relationships and the dynamic work there. Yeah, I think sometimes there is that, um, that perception from within the industry, but uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Everyone has the same challenges. They're just at different scales of economy. Um, in different formats, you know, most people have got ticketing, booketing systems, um, emissions challenges, maintenance challenges. Um, so I think there's a lot we can all learn from each other. They're just in different styles, really. So one of the things that you mentioned early on is when you you got into this role and you went over to IAPA, you visited some attractions. I'm curious, what inspires you? Like when you go to an attraction, what are you looking for? What are you looking at? Um and how does that affect you or inspire you when you come back to Black Gang? So I um, I just love seeing how everyone does everything differently, but also exactly the same as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I love going to other parks and, you know, when I go with my son, we stood in the queue line and I'll be talking to him about how they're loading guests onto the ride or actually oh, that's fantastic how that ride operator engaged with them or, you know, if there's an issue with a height limit, how do they handle that? Um, and I'll, you know, I'll bring that back to the team and say, hey, guys, I went to visit this site, you know, saw this. I think this is a really great way of doing it. Or, yeah, it can be anything from that all the way through to, uh, you know, watching someone go around the site and, and collect litter and the piece of equipment that they're using to do that. And I'll be like, oh, OK, that's great. I'll, I'll take a photo of that and, you know, take that back to James, who looks after our site and services and say, you know, we've got to get one of these mobile wheelie bins. I've seen this guy using it. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's brilliant. Um, all the way through to, you know, theming ideas, um, the way food is served in particular restaurants, the, the booking experience on the website. Um, yeah, I'm a real sort of geek of trying to absorb all that, all that information and, and, and take the best bits of anywhere I go and see how we can scale that up or down to translate to our business as well. I just love how many people we have had on the show that say, when I visit other places, I take pictures of their trash cans and the way that they, they pick <laughs> trash and I bring that. I, I've got to imagine we're one of the few podcasts out there where, where we, we hear that a lot. And that's, and that's great to hear how people are, are learning from each other. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, how does that then translate to, to the rest of your team? I, I've seen uh, you were quoted uh, recently saying it's important for your staff to leave the island, see other attractions and attend training courses. So what is what does that look like of being able to, to take all that and, and spread that out to your team? So I think um, BALP is instrumental in that, um, in terms of the team's involvement and being able to go to the various conferences that they run go to the various training days and experiences that are run by them and also the other organizations that are associated with Balfour as well. And I think that really helps broaden the team's understanding because I think it's okay me coming back saying, great guys, I've seen this, we, we should really start doing it like this. But if they are able to actually go and experience that firsthand themselves, they're then able to, you know, experience that emotion of being loaded onto a ride and having a really great experience with that operator. So then it brings to life the things and the examples that I'm trying to give them. And equally, I think it, it's great for them to be stars within their own right. I'm really um, proud of the, the the members of the team that have gone to the various subcommittees within Balfour as well. And I think it's fantastic for them to, they're the experts in those fields um, and they should, you know, be shining examples of, of that particular area of the business that they work in. And I think that helps develop their confidence 
and also then enables them to look at new practices within their own areas of speciality within the organization as well. So big advocate of them going out and experiencing other things. And that's the best way of people learning, really. Mm. Well, Dom, throughout this conversation, you've really given us a lot of insight into kind of how your mind works and you know what, what you focus on. I'm curious if you have any advice or thoughts for upcoming leaders, even maybe even people coming in from um, other other industries coming into the uh, in the attractions industry? Um, I would say just talk to as many people as possible um, and attend as many uh, expos and events. Um, go and have that conversation with that that person that you sort of look up to or or thinks more senior or wow, I wonder how they got that job working for that company. Um, because People are always willing to help each other. Um, it's it's got to be the most friendly, welcoming industry that I've ever worked in. Um, and, it, and it really does feel like even though people are working at different attractions of different scales, everyone will have a conversation with everyone. And you know, they're always willing to help somebody else that works in the industry um, and signpost them uh, along the way. I would just say get yourself involved in as many organizations whether that's by Apple, wherever you are in the world and i think networking within that is is really valuable um, and that just opens up more and more doors and opportunities for you yeah completely agree that, that this is absolutely one of the most welcoming industries that everyone's out here to you know to help and like you said talk to as many people as possible you know at, you know ask those questions reach out uh for someone who might not feel 100% confident in doing that yet because maybe they they haven't seen how amazing and friendly and welcoming that other person might be who wants to help them maybe this is kind of getting like a little little more granular here but kind of taking taking that step into networking can be very intimidating for some people and i'm curious perhaps how how you've overcome that or or what advice you would have in that regard yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always one to go up and say hello to anyone, uh, so <laughs> that's always been my been my strategy. Um, but I, I think there's lots of tools that you can use to kind of take steps along the way to that. I think LinkedIn's a fantastic uh, tool for that. Uh, I think it's a great way of connecting with people and opening up conversations in a in a softer manner versus walking across the room and just introducing yourself to someone um, and i think if you know you're going to attend an event or an expo and you can go on linkedin and see the various other people that are attending you know drop drop someone a message say hi i'm going to be attending this as well it'd be great to grab a coffee have a chat um when we're there and then that kind of softly opens the door for you to go up and have that conversation with whoever you want to have a chat to if you feel like that's a bit of a better a better route of um of going down for you or go with a colleague uh or you know if you've got a connection within the space that you're going to visit already you can quite often use those people to help open those doors for you or introduce you to other people as well so that would be would be my strategy for that awesome kind of along that that similar line you know you talked about team members that are you know kind of coming up through the organization um would you have kind of similar thoughts for them even if they're within the organization to kind of network within their or within their teams and within you know again people next to them so they're not creating those silos in addition to kind of going out and getting off the island yeah yeah completely agree i i i think that um both internal networking and external networking is is fantastic for people's personal development. I think, you know, if they're able to connect with people within the industry and in similar businesses as having similar challenges, it, it enables them to, to feel um, less isolated around particular problems that they might have. You know, there's, there's probably somebody else somewhere that's having the same issue with loading onto a ride that, that you're having. It's at a similar sort of level that might be needing to solve a similar sort of problem for, for, for their boss. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's really positive for them to do that. And I actually think that going out into other organizations and networking with other organizations enables your team to be happier within the organization that they're, they're working in because you give them that freedom to experience that and then bring those ideas back. I think it's more dangerous to stop people visiting other attractions and going and seeing other people and networking because that's when they then feel, well, I'm, I'm a bit stuck here. Why can't I go out and, and grow personally myself as well? So yeah, a big advocate for doing that, definitely. Excellent. 
So John, we have a, a few minutes left here, but there's one thing uh, here that we'd also love to ask you about, and that's about Terror Island. And I'm wondering if you can if you can tell us about that because uh, Vectus also operates uh, Terror Island too. Yeah, yeah. So Terror Island is a Halloween experience um, that we run uh, at Black Game Shine in October, um, which we've proudly won quite a few uh, national awards for. Um, we have four scare mazes that we operate here. And our real unique selling point on that is that the mazes are within very old buildings. Obviously, having been here for a number of years, we've got quite a few old buildings. Uh, and that's really what makes them very unique. One of them is housed in an old water mill that is incredibly old that goes across two floors. So when you go downstairs into the water mill uh, to meet the pig man that uh, resides down there, you do have that real sort of foreboding sense of a, of a child of all there's a noise downstairs and I'm going to go down and investigate it knowing full well that you you probably shouldn't be doing that um and that's really something that we've developed over a number of years to extend our demographic for the park it's very different from what we offer normally um you have to be over 16 to come and visit that particular um attraction um, and we segment that off into an area of the park that's not used throughout the rest of the year. Uh, and that's gone down very well with our with our customers, but it's something completely different from the normal sort of family-friendly offering. Um, and then we then use the, the customer base we have there for and leverage them into events that we run during the summer called Sunset Sessions, which are clifftop parties that we have here with um, various DJs that we bring in. Um, and again, that can extends our demographic outside of the normal family market uh, and kind of gives the, the parents a good opportunity to party while they leave the kids at home as well. So I do have one more question about an attraction that I read about on the website. Is there something called the mouth of hell? Yes, there is. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? That sounds unique. Yeah. 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 So the, the, uh, in essence, the mouth of hell is a, uh, a large fiberglass dome, um, which uh, looks like it's coming out of the ground as if it is the entrance into hell, which has spot, um, spiky teeth in it. Uh, and you can actually crawl into it. Uh, there is a very uh, small hole at the front of the mouth that you can crawl through, which every year um, someone will end up getting stuck uh, in because they remember being able to get through it as a small child, which you can. Um, but maybe not as a 40 year old man, can you fit through it anymore? Um, but that, that's a very popular classic attraction because you can go inside and climb in the eyes. Um, and it's something that people remember that's been in the park for, for 30, 40 years as well. So yeah, quite, quite a quirky uh, piece of history within the park, yeah. That sounds awesome. <laughs> so Dom, as we uh, start to wind this down here, if people want to learn more about Vectus Ventures in, and Black Gang Chine, and they want to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? Yeah, so they can go to blackgangchine.com or my email address is dominic.ray at vectusventures.co.uk and you can find me on LinkedIn as well under Dominic Ray. Excellent. Well, Dom, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's been great to learn about you and certainly Black Gang Chine and all the things that we've been uh, we've been educated about today. So thank you so much for your time. And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.